Welcome to the Highland Southern Baptist Podcast. Each week, Keith Perrin will deliver a Holy Spirit-inspired message. If you have a Bible, you can read along with us. Our mission is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ from Hillsboro, Missouri to the rest of the world. Now, here's Pastor Keith. If you get your Bibles, open them up to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we'll be starting with verse 1, we'll see how far we can get through this. I've got to at least get down to the 22nd, 23rd verses, so we'll see how uh, see how it goes, whether I have to jump ahead some. Um, this particular passage of scripture, the, the uh, church in Thessalonica was constantly being bombarded by individuals giving false information. Uh, people who were coming in, whether they were Jews who were trying to disrupt Christianity or uh, they were Gentiles who just had a problem with Christianity in general. There was people that was telling church members, and you could, you, I mean, if you could imagine fairly young church members, um, these individuals hearing people, you know, if, if you die before Jesus comes back, and this was, this was actually happening, um, when they had received the gospel, and I guess I have to kind of put this in context for you. If you were uh, to go back and look in the book of Acts, the story where, the, where uh, this is actually taking place, where Paul went to uh, Thessalonica, it's one of the cities that he was driven out of because Paul, what he typically did was he would, he would go into a city, he would find the synagogue, and then he would go into the synagogue and use Old Testament passages to prove that Jesus Christ was who Jesus Christ claimed that he, claimed that he was, that, there, that he was a Messiah. Um, people got very upset when he did this. So Paul wasn't able to spend, this was a second missionary journey, wasn't able to spend much time in Thessalonica really at all because the things that he was doing for Jesus was just not working out for uh, a lot of the people who were either non-believers or people who had their income locked up in cheating people. Um, one of the, could you imagine what this world would be like if there was no church influence? I mean, if there was no, no individuals being led by the Spirit, no individuals uh, being willing to help people who were in need, no individuals who were willing to be the peacemaker uh, in a world of, of outright war, um, it would be a completely different world. And the Apostle Paul, when he was driven out of these cities, he would go from one city to the next, make people mad, made him so mad that he basically had to throw off the dogs at one point. That was when he basically, the, the ever, uh, Timothy and them said, hey, you need to go to Athens for a while, chill out, and then we'll meet you in Corinth. So he was told, well, so what did Paul do? He goes to Athens. And he, he can't just be quiet in a dark corner somewhere and wait till it's time for him to go to Corinth. The first thing he's got to do is go through the city and go, hmm, here is a statue to the unknown God. And then he stands in Athens and tells everybody who the unknown God is. Amen. <laughs> that's what, that's what the apostle Paul did. But because of the fact that he was proclaiming a gospel that was not super popular, he didn't get to spend a whole lot of time in those, in those, in those cities that he went to. Thessalonica was one of those. So Paul basically was around long enough uh, to share the gospel, got some converts, and then when he'd gotten the converts, he had been driven out. So with the converts, he had some chance to teach them some things, things about the return of the Lord, um, when Jesus Christ comes back for his church, uh, the, the basics of the gospel. But that's all they got was the basics of the gospel. So Paul's driven out of the city. While he's driven out of the city, then these other people come in, they start telling people, you know, Paul said that Jesus uh, was coming back for his church, and then people around him are dying, and these people are going, see, what about that person who just died? 
So people were afraid that the, the, their loved ones who had passed on before them, uh, that they missed the boat because Jesus didn't come back and get them all. Um, death happened, and when death happened, that pretty much sealed the deal for that person. I mean, imagine being a young Christian and being told, you know, your loved one who just passed away, they just missed the boat because they were supposed to stay alive until Jesus came back the next time. It was a ton of pressure being placed on the church at that particular time. So when Paul left, it was within a month of the time that he left that city that he wrote this letter. And it was within a month after he wrote this letter that he had to write the second letter. So this was a very chaotic situation that the church was actually going through at this particular time. So the Apostle Paul, and even though you won't see this word in here, you'll certainly see the principle, dedication. Now, I want you to think about dedication and what dedication really means. I mean, you can throw, you can throw some other words at it uh, that kind of go along uh, the same lines, but that word dedication is this. If you're dedicated to something, then one, you're going to look out for it. Two, you're going to protect it. Now, by looking out for it, I mean it's something that, you've, that you, your attention is on, that you are solely putting your attention on that one thing. When you're dedicated to that thing and you have a problem, if you're dedicated, you fix it. You find a solution for the problem. We also put things in place as people that kind of protect us in our dedication. Now, what do I mean by protect us? I mean there are a lot of ways for us as individuals to be able to recognize when somebody is telling us a lie. We're going to cover that. This passage of Scripture actually cover all this. We have the ability to be discerning enough to know when Satan is throwing something at us, when he's throwing something at us, it's intended to knock us off uh, the path that Jesus has us on. You guys know what I'm talking about. Every, every day, those little things. They can be little things. Occasionally, we'll have a huge thing thrown at us, but sometimes they're just little things. And from the time we get up in the morning and our feet hit the floor, there are things in this fallen world that try to manipulate and push us to do something that Jesus doesn't want us to do. Well, our dedication to the Lord, as a result of his dedication first toward us, in other words, this is a response, um, how can you not love the Lord? I mean, someone who has accepted his love, how can you not love the Lord? So it's, it's reactive. We can't say we love the Lord. He loved us first. Um. So when we get into this particular passage of Scripture, what's going on in the church at the particular time with all of the people that are actually saying things that are untrue, and Paul's addressing some of those things that he was reported to that were being said, and he addresses some of those things in chapter 5. Uh, but lots of principles in this chapter on how we can actually protect um, our dedicated nature to, uh, to Christianity. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting with verse 1, he says, now, as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Very elementary statement that he made in these first two verses. He says, uh, times and epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. So what he's saying specifically there is, I, there is no way that I can tell you exactly when Jesus is coming back because these people are really freaked out over, over this Jesus returning thing. They really have this church messed up. So um, in these first two verses, he talks about the times and the epics, brethren. It's one of these times and epics. Do they matter? They don't. You know how to tell whether something really matters or not? 
It's whether it's still going to be around when Jesus comes back. Whether it's still going to be around after everything's destroyed. That's, that's when we're going to see the true value in anything that we have and anything that we've done in our lives. When Jesus Christ comes back, that's when we'll know the true value of it. Because everything that's worthless won't exist. Now, I'm not saying people shouldn't live. And I'm not saying that people shouldn't want to live in a house that's in decent shape and a nice house and drive a nice vehicle. There's nothing wrong with those things. But you can't take them with you. Um, I don't remember if I said it from the pulpit or if I said it from in a Bible study, but I probably said it several times. Dad used to talk about putting his, getting all of his money out of the bank and putting it in the attic. And then we're supposed to put him in that spot so when he passes away he could get his money on the way up. Can't do it. Doesn't work that way. But what will last? Well, the word of God's going to last. Love's going to last. Compassion's going to last. Um, the gospel message itself is going to last. So the the devil has a lot at stake when it comes to an individual who's a dedicated dedicated Christian compared to someone who's not. A dedicated Christian. Uh, makes the walls of hell shake. They make Satan very uncomfortable. Um, individuals who practice Christianity, um, they are a threat to what it is that he's actually trying to accomplish. And he's going to do everything that he can to us as Christians to try to bring about what it is that he wants to bring about. You know, Satan was kicked out of heaven for what? What did he try to do? Tried to take, tried to take God's throne. Right? He wanted God's job. So God kicked him out of heaven. So is it no longer a possibility for Satan to kick God off the throne? It is possible. But he doesn't do it by physically kicking God off of his throne in heaven. He does it by kicking God off the throne of your hearts. He will do anything that he can to try to cross lines and cross wires to try to hurt your dedication. And folks, it takes it takes things like this. It takes things like, I mean, when the church got hit pretty bad with, with COVID, that's exactly what this is talking about. This is... Some people get pushed in the wrong direction, and the wrong direction isn't necessarily one direction or the other. The point is being manipulated, being manipulated by, and, and we live in a day and age now with uh, the presence of social media, with uh, the, with the number of outlets that we have for uh, for news sources, for individuals who would never ever claim that they're a news source, but they're commentators. There is more garbage being pushed through the airways now than there ever has been in history. Garbage. And it's not just it's not just the liberal people that are lying to lying to people. It's also the conservatives that are lying to people. I ranted on politicians for a minute or two last week, I think. Politicians are politicians. Uh, there's no way for them to not be a politician and be a politician. A politician is a politician. The fact is, folks, we have got to we have got to get ourselves to a point as believers in Jesus Christ that our existence is contained within Jesus Christ, period. Because Christians for way too long have allowed things to manipulate them and to knock them off track 
I've seen it thousands of times in 32 years of ministry. Where individuals start off like they're dedicated, but then something happens. Close friend dies. Family member dies. Um, somebody gets deathly ill. A divorce happens in the family. I've seen a thousand scenarios that would cause a person to just quit. Just quit. Now, I know most of the people that we don't have now here, they haven't quit. They're staying engaged. I'm still sending them messages. They're still tithing. They're still um, staying engaged with the Facebook page. So I'm not talking about the people here that are. But the fact is, I have seen people, a husband and wife, go through a divorce, and both of them quit church. I've seen um, custody battles get so ugly that people quit going to church. And I'm not talking about things that go on inside the church. I'm talking about things that are going on in individuals' lives that tend to push them away. And I've always scratched my head about this because I've never really, I don't get it. If we understand the value of who Jesus is and we understand the value of this relationship, then what can possibly happen in our lives pushes us away from him. You would think that the troubles in life would actually push us towards him. But something in human nature drives people away from uh, Calvary, drives them away from Jesus, it drives them away from church. And I get that it's, it's all manipulation. You know why the two people who were divorced quit going to church? Because of the stigma that hangs over the heads of people who are divorced. A church shouldn't be a place that makes people uncomfortable. But if people are dedicated to their Lord, there are circumstances that, I get it, divorces, they they happen, I get it. Am I supposed to be a justifier of that? No, I'm supposed to be exactly what the Bible says, God hates divorce, he hates it. But we also live under grace. And there are mistakes that happen in people's lives. And I know a lot of people who said, if I could ever do this over again, I would definitely do it different. And there are other people who it didn't matter what the scenario was, it wasn't going to be good. But the stigma is what kept them away. Not because anybody in this church would actually say anything to them or grill them about being divorced. Because nobody would have. But Satan had convinced both of these individuals that now that they've been divorced, they are tainted and marked. And everybody in the world's going to know it. It's going to put a third eye right here. And everybody's going to know it. And people are going to treat me bad. Straight from the pits of hell. If you ever walk into a church and you have just gone through something and the church is mean to you, find you another one. Find another one. Because a church cannot be a church and be hateful. Don't get me wrong. A church is supposed to is supposed to speak the truth. But folks, I don't know where we lost the in love part. Speak the truth in love. This goes along with everything that I've said before. Homosexuality. Love the homosexual. Love them. Doesn't mean you have to go out to eat with them every day. Doesn't mean you have to invite them over to your house. But it does mean be respectful to them. We know what they don't, and we want them to know what we know. And the only way they get to know what we know is if we get to engage them in a conversation. And it's not going to happen as long as we're calling them faggots. 
It's not going to happen as long as we're throwing just their judgment at them. Dedication can be affected by almost anything. Verse 3 says, while they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. So he's talking about here, and he's giving them a, a, a contrast. He's comparing the two of them and giving them a contrast. The non-believer, he's basically saying the person who dies without Christ, it's hopeless. And it's gonna, when it happens to them, it's going to happen to them quickly. Look what he says in 4. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of the light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. But you, brothers, you, brethren, are not in darkness. You see, we love the homosexual because they have no idea. But we learn to love the homosexual because we should have an idea. And we should have an idea by knowing the word of God, knowing the will of God, knowing what the purpose and the plan of God is. The more we know about his word, the more of a buffer that it creates around us as individuals to snap us back when we get into that place where our dedication is waning. In other words, Paul's saying, do not sleep as others do. Now here, he's not talking about death. In most cases in the New Testament, when you see the word sleep, the word sleep is speaking of the first death. In this passage of Scripture, it is not. In this passage of Scripture, it is directly associating uh, this. Look at it again, verse 4. He says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Do not let us sleep as others do. Meaning, how much downtime can you take as a Christian? I mean, we all know. We all know. I mean, what, it, what in the book of Job, when God said, Lucifer, what are you doing? What did he say? It's been stated in more than one place in the scripture. Wandering here and there. Trying to find someone to devour. You think he's not watching for you to put your guard down? I mean, let's think back. Has there ever been a time in your life where you let your guard down in Christianity where Satan didn't take advantage of it. I mean, we honestly think he's maybe so busy with the other some six billion people in the, in the, in the world that he's not watching us that close. I mean, it doesn't hurt to take a little break, does it? I guarantee you, Satan is watching you like a hawk. And he's looking for every opening. And if we don't stay alert and sober, we'll never see it coming. I learned before I became the pastor over here. One thing, 
One thing you never do is leap based on the information that you were just given. I had people who I know disliked other people in the church. This was 18 years ago. And they would come to me on purpose and make up a lie that this person did to try to get me to go confront that person. Well, the truth was, that person who did that didn't like me much either. So I spent the first five years in pastoral ministry here trying to pick out traps that these individuals who didn't like me, and there wasn't a lot of them, but they try to trap me. And if you wasn't watching, it could happen. And how, how disastrous can a trap be for, on a pastor's vocation? You get fired pretty quick for doing the wrong thing, saying the wrong thing, acting the wrong way. Let us not sleep as others do. It just means stay awake. You've heard people talk about the, the sleeping giant in the United States. That, you know, it takes something grossly immoral and it seems like that it shakes awake the church. Why does it take something like that to shake awake the church? I get we're human beings. I get we get a little leeway because we're fallen individuals. We're not perfect by any means. But I'll say, as I've said a whole bunch of times before, that if we were to be honest, we could be a whole lot more perfect than we are. We could be doing a whole lot better at this than we are. Anybody in here willing to raise your hand and say, I have no room for improvement when it comes to my Christianity? We all have room for improvement. The first thing that we need to do if we're going to be dedicated individuals is, is be protective. And being protective uh, means to be able to recognize the threat before the threat becomes dangerous. Verse 7, he said, For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, here's the deal. And I think that we have a lot of people in the country who get up in the mornings and they go on about their day without really giving much of a passing thought about their relationship with Christ, Christianity. How is this going to affect my day to day? Even praying and asking God, hey, God, send a lost person my way today and give me eyes that give me the ability to see and give me a heart that understands clearly enough that I can say this to a person and, this, and, and you're going to cause the response from this how many people do you think really get up in the morning and even give a passing glance at their Christianity? And I'm not saying there's none. There's certainly some. But I believe wholeheartedly there are a whole lot more that aren't thinking about God when they wake up in the morning. Now, the when he said in 8, but since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet, the hope of salvation. But here's the deal with armor. Why do you put it on? To protect you, right? Now, when you put that helmet on, are you just putting the helmet on because it's stylish? It was featured in Phil's fashion, Phil's fashion show. Or you put a helmet on because you expect that it's going to protect your head. Uh, Modern-day terms, what about a bulletproof vest? Why does a person wear a bulletproof vest? Is it because it makes them look buff? They put on underneath their shirt, gives them a fashion? Maybe it's comfortable. Is it comfortable, Austin? (laughs) It's not comfortable. (laughs) So why in the world would you put one on? 
You see, this is, this is it's a perfect analogy. A police officer wakes up in the morning. They say, you know what? Somebody may decide to hurl some bullets at me today. Probably be a good idea to put my bulletproof vest on. Do you see the discernment in that? So if I wake up in the morning, and, and, and that morning I wake up and I say, hey, you know what, Lord, I'm going to go share the gospel with 10 people today. And if you give me the chance, I'll double that number. What's the first thing I should think about? I better think about the protections that come along with Christianity, right? Because there's a pretty good chance that if I go share the gospel with 10 to 20 people, somebody's going to not be nice to me. And if I'm not ready for people to not be nice to me, then I'm going to tuck my tail between my legs. I'm going to put my chin against my chest. I'm going to go get in my car defeated and drive home. I'm done. Had a church member several years ago. I think I've said this before too, but had a church member several years ago who uh, had a lot of back problems. Uh, back surgery killed him. He died on the table. Some of you remember him, Michael Frazier. And uh, he had gotten so bad, and, and, and he had faith. I mean, he's a growing, he was a growing Christian um, and, and had faith. He was hurting real bad one night, and I was over at his house, and he, uh, he, he got excited, which was awesome. And then he said, Satan, bring it. I, I could have slapped him. That is not something you challenge Satan at. It's just not something you challenge him at. If we're going to be individuals who are representing Jesus on a 24-hour-a-day basis, then we can't be clocked in only eight hours a day. We have to be clocked in 24 hours a day. And honestly, I don't know how much it happens to you guys. I'm sure that it probably does. But you get them phone calls where somebody's distressed because of something going on in a family member's life. or There is no leeway when it comes to the damage that can be done by someone who's not discerning. The damage that can be done by someone who doesn't look ahead and say, hey, you know what? This is what I'm going to do. And I know right off the bat that if I go do this, this is what the response is going to be. Several possibilities of other responses, but there's definitely going to be some responses. I would even go so far as to say, out of all of my experience, 80% of the people you walk up to on the street are not going to be very nice to you for telling them about Jesus. Eight out of ten, not going to be nice. The other two, you may lead one to the Lord. You also may not lead either one of them to the Lord. And they may be polite. Most cases, the polite people just try to get rid of you. That's usually their first intention is they got somewhere to be. They got somewhere that something they've got to do. Verse 9 says, For God is not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you also are doing. Now, given the fact that we are human beings, we can be dedicated as can be, we can lay out the plans for our day, be, dis- be as discerning as we can possibly be about what may possibly happen, how we are going to respond to it, doesn't matter how much 
you learn, doesn't matter how much you go to church, doesn't matter how much you pray, doesn't matter how dedicated you are to Jesus, you are still going to fail. It's going to happen. And when that happens, we need each other. Sometimes you need somebody else to come up alongside you, give you that swift little Christian kick in the back pocket, and say, look, get up, let's go. And we nurse each other back to health. It's the way it's supposed to happen. Verse 12 says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. You know what I see in this when I read these, every time I read these two verses? It's like, would you guys knock it off because you're driving your preacher crazy? Would you knock it off? You're driving your deacon crazy. Would you knock it off? You're driving your, your Sunday school teacher crazy. In a nutshell, that's really what Paul's saying here. He's saying, hey, you guys are going to, you're going to have these times where you need to pick each, each other up and dust each other off, but you are so, you are also, um, you also need to be an individual who is mindful of the fact that, that, uh, bad situations creates work. And not just for the preacher. Creates work for the individual's friends. It creates work for any scenario whatsoever that an individual like that or individual is, is hurt. They need attention. They get the attention that they need. They recover. That last, last sentence in verse 13, living peace with one another. Not false peace, but real peace. You notice when we take the Lord's Supper, there's always that point in time where, I mean, you know, the Corinthian letter actually lays it out really clear, but um, it's really important before you take the Lord's Supper that you deal with any relationship issues. And I go so far as to say relationship issues in the church. Um, I've only seen it happen twice in all 32 years of, um, of my Christianity, uh, I should say, of, in ministry. I've only seen it happen a couple of times where it came time to do the Lord's Supper. The minister said, if you, have any, if you have anything heavy on your heart, anything you need to deal with, any brother you need to forgive, any sister you need to forgive, do it before the Lord's Supper is taken up. Two times in my life I've seen people get up, Right there. Walk over to the person they had a problem with, hug them, say, you know what, this was childish, love you, sorry, sit down, take the Lord's Supper. Most of this is just, most of Christianity is common sense. Common sense isn't very common anymore, but uh, most of Christianity is, is pretty much common sense. I mean, God says that he wrote, he wrote uh, his word on the tablet of our hearts. So even somebody who's a non-believer has the potential of being moral because being Christians don't make us moral. Being created by God is what makes us moral. Immoral individuals is what we become when we become people who no longer respect God, who he is or what it is that he's done. Verse 14, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the fainthearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. Admonish the unruly. 
nip it out quickly. Snuff it out. Encourage the faint-hearted. Is there very many faint-hearted people in the world? I think there's actually more faint-hearted people in the world than there are. We use the words, of course, now, introvert, extrovert. A faint-hearted person would be someone who is an introvert, someone who's very, keep them a distance from everyone. They, um, they need encouragement because to them the sky's falling. To them everything's the end of the world. Um, they're not very quick to get back on their feet when they fall down. Faint-hearted people are um, sensitive, extremely sensitive. Faint-hearted people need people occasionally to come along and encourage them. Somebody had a bad hair day, and you tell them they got nice hair. Is it a lie? Maybe. The last part of this, he says, be patient with all men. Patience. How many of you have an extra truckload of that? You know, things really should not get under our skin like it does, though. I mean, I was even, I've even been shocked. Have you guys seen some of these commercials they're running? With, uh, how do I even say this? A bikini cut on a commercial at prime time, like 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And they're showing this woman shave a bikini cut. Now, my hand goes on my forehead, and I'm just like, Four or five o'clock in the afternoon, and this they literally have this woman shaving herself with a close-up. Where's this world headed? Now, anytime, anytime we see something like that, there's always an inward response to it. Question is, what's the inward response? Should it be anger? Frustration? Maybe just talk about how bad it is that they're putting commercials like that out in the middle of the day. Self-control and patience, self-control, gives us the ability to be able to say, how can I take this, which is a very negative situation, and turn it into a very positive situation? Sometimes it's not easy. But most of the time there's an answer. Most of the time, there's a way to take something that could be a negative influence and turn it into a positive influence. 15 says, see that no one repays evil with evil for, uh, with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. Have you guys ever felt the need to get somebody back? All right, let me ask this one more time. How many of you have ever felt the need to get somebody back? Had to get the last word, had to get the last dig in, had to get... I had one of those recently where during Betty's funeral, I actually talked about the fact that I was going to be in trouble because I did her funeral in in New American Standard. Anybody who doesn't know, she is a King James 11 11 woman, so she's... um, The interesting thing about this particular verse is it says, 
but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. Now, how do you do this for all people? How do you do that? Um, Let's see, how do I say this? If you have a blood relative, and then you have somebody else who's just a friend, which of the two do you treat better? It's okay. I'm going to embarrass all of us here in a second. Blood's thicker than water, right? I've lived through experiences where there were Christians who believed that blood was thicker than the Holy Spirit. There have been at least five situations in 20 years where when it came down to choosing between a family member or what's right, they went with the family member. If there is anything in the world that I'm going to do, best case scenario, it will not have one negative impact on anybody. It requires all of this previous mentioned stuff to be in place in order for that to happen. Why do we not steal? Is it just because stealing's bad? Well, you can ask yourself, is your stealing hurting anybody else? It's raising the prices at the restaurant. It's raising the prices at Walmart. Because somebody goes in and steals, they've got to figure that out. So the next year, they figure an average percent that they've got to raise their prices in order to be able to cover the thieves. There are a lot of things in the world that we have the ability to be able to recognize whether it's good, bad, or indifferent just based on whether it's not only good for me, not only good for the people in my immediate circle, but it's also good for everybody that's outside of that circle. 16 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything. Give thanks, for, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I'll spend just a second, just a second on this because we've got to get to these next few verses. Pray without ceasing, and everything. Give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It takes an extremely mature individual to be able to process, process this in such a way that it's actually an encouragement Look close at this, 17 and 18. Pray without ceasing in everything. Give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. God's will for us is not the thanks. God's will for us is whatever happens in our lives. Rejoice how often? Always. Pray how often? Without ceasing. And in every prayer, we should be thanking God. And I know that in some cases, that makes no sense at all. But when you think about it, it really does. Whether it's probably the worst 
scenario I could possibly bring up was a funeral service that I did for a three-month-old. What's more important, I'm going to be very careful saying this because I don't want you to hear me. I don't want you to hear this wrong. What's more important, a three-month-old or God's plan? Just made you look dumb, didn't I? Made you look like a jerk. Because what's more important, a three-year-old's life or God's plan? I'll say it. It's God's plan. What's more important? God's plan or somebody be, or uh, somebody dying from cancer? Now here's the thing. I'm not saying this to make God look like a jerk. I'm saying this because we have no idea what the big picture is. No clue what the big picture is. We don't know how one person's life is going to affect anything, but it's going to affect a lot of things. God knows exactly what those things are. If we believe that God is not cruel, if we believe that God is not hateful, if we believe that he really does love us, then we also have to believe that anything that happens was according to his purpose and his plan. And yes, regardless of what that may be, we should be thanking God for it. Why? Because I don't need to know the plan for me to know that he has his plan and the best interest of all humankind at heart. I've used my migraine headaches before. If God Can God take away my migraines? He hasn't. So should I get mad at him? Or should I just settle on the fact that he's accomplishing something through my headaches or he would heal me? So we're just going to deal with it how we deal with it. Verse 21 says, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Examine everything carefully. We can't be people who fly through life by the seat of our britches, making uh, instant statements, instant decisions, without putting God into the mix. When he asks us to examine ourselves, he's asking us the exact same thing. And the reason that he's talking about examining is because we need it. We need to examine ourselves, where we're at in our relationship with Christ. And the reason that we are the ones that have to do that is because we are the only ones that know. I mean, people literally walk around this world carrying bones. In many cases, they're hidden in the darkest corners of their closets. Examine everything carefully. Examine what people say. Examine what people do. Examine what people preach. I've said many, many times before, I encourage you to bring your Bibles. Bring your Bibles. We put it up on the screen. I want you to check thoroughly. I want you to check so thoroughly that you have checked what it is that I'm preaching 20 different ways. I want that. Examine carefully. Abstain from every form of evil. Abstinence. Do not do it. An ounce of prevention is better than a pound of cure. Do you know what's better than not having to... You know what's better than... um, 
I was going to say that. You know what's better than saying I'm sorry all the time? To stop doing whatever it is that makes you say I'm sorry. It's amazing. I mean, did you know you can even love people without telling them you love them? When, when Paul wrote this letter to the church in Thessalonica, he wrote the letter to address some protections. They're in that chapter that, put in, that are put in place by the individual that then has the ability to be able to at least know the possibility of what's coming, in some cases to know what's coming, in all cases to know how to respond to what's coming. Our emotional mess of a life that we as Christians experience, it shouldn't be an emotional mess that crashes us to the bottom and keeps us there. There are going to be bad days. There's going to be good days. But even in the bad days, we have everything in the world to hope for. We have everything in the world for us to be happy about. We tend to walk around the world as if we're individuals who are defeated. And we tend to act that way in a lot of things that we say and do. The fact is, that's not the life Jesus called us into. He called us into a life that's supposed to be at its fullest. More abundant. A life that is motivated by a peace that passes all understanding, a strength that's beyond human endeavor, encouragement that's above any discouragement. This is the life. Nobody starts there. Everybody starts in the same place. But the character and quality of a Christian that's put out will have everything in the world to do. It's the things that 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 points out. It'll keep you from being lied to. It'll keep you from being hurt from being lied to. It'll also push forth the gospel. It eliminates everything that's bad. And it lifts up everything that's good. If you're here today, you've never placed your trust in Jesus Christ, your personal Lord and Savior. Um, today's the day of salvation. You can either come up here to me or uh, after church, tell me you want to sit down and talk. I'll take whatever time's available. Believer, the truth is I probably could have preached three sermons out of this passage of Scripture today. Um, the Christian... Is is this life in Christ all that you expected it to be? And even a better question, is there more in Christianity to experience in life than what we are? Then if the answer to that question is yes, then we've got to figure out what those barriers are. We've got to figure out what those roadblocks are. Did we put them there? Did somebody else put them there? Use God's word. Find encouragement. Be the person inside God called you to be. Then you can be the person outside that God called you to be. Thank you for joining us today. If you have questions about becoming a Christian, prayer requests, or just want to say hello, you can reach us at facebook.com forward slash Highland Southern BC. We hope that this message was encouraging to all of our listeners. Have a blessed week.